Let's open our Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 28. I know it might be a shock to you, but it is a resurrection story. And if you're able, would you stand with me as I read the Word of God? Heavenly Father, we ask that you would come upon us today. With your Holy Spirit, open our eyes. Provide for us understanding that we might not just read your Word and see the words that are there, but that they would penetrate our hearts deep within us, affect our very lives, so that we may apply them in all that we do. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So it's Matthew chapter 28, and I will read uh, the first 10 verses. Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his garment as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they shall see me. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Now, again, this is Resurrection Sunday, and we're all aware of that, but believe it or not, bringing people back from the dead uh, is a lot more common than we think. Uh, It's happened for several thousand years, and to to many different people, and almost in every culture, something like that has happened. Now, the idea of resuscitating a seemingly dead person uh, by more or less a physical means... Uh, is found all the way back in First and in Second Kings. We see evidence of, of these things. Um, there's pressure on somebody's chest. Elijah puts his mouth on the boy who has is, who is died. They come back. Now, was that uh, early CPR, or was that just a physical means that the Lord used to work his power? Well, it doesn't say. If we go to the 15th century, in Italian writings, we find that midwives had long used a mouth-to-mouth breathing technique to resuscitate newborns who did not breathe spontaneously upon birth. A guy named Vesalius, uh, back in the mid-1500s, the father of modern anatomy, reported successfully using bellows to resuscitate asphyxiated dogs. So if he could do that to dogs, he said, well, why can't I do it to people? So he did it to people, and that worked for a while until he figured out that, that the bellows would hold more air than the lungs of a person. And then there were complications. You can imagine that, okay? 
Uh, by the mid-1700s, there were several cases of successful mouth-to-mouth resuscitation that had been reported. Uh, perhaps the most famous was a guy named Tussix. Uh He resuscitated a clinically dead coal miner who had been overcome as he went down to rescue others in a mine fire. In 1766, the government in Zurich put this edict out. Experience has shown that the drowned who are considered dead and that lay for some time underwater have often been restored again and kept alive by proper maneuvers, from which one rightly concludes that life has not been completely suspended in the drowned, but that there is hope to save them from death if, as soon as they are withdrawn from the water, prompt and careful help is administrative. Now, there have been several well-known and well-documented cases of adults and children who have been found submerged in very cold water for long periods of time, were stuck under the ice, and when they are brought out, they are revived. Now, there's a Coast Guard flight surgeon, uh, Dr. Nemiroff, and he is up in the Alaska uh, Kodiak Island area, and he is personally been involved in the resuscitation of 35 individuals who were in very cold water for a very extended period of time. And his thought and and one of his writings is that cold water seems to slow down the heartbeat, stops the breathing, redistributes the blood flow towards the organs uh, in need, in most need of blood and oxygen. So this is called what he says the diving response. It reduces the brain's need for oxygen and permits it to survive in a long, a longer time. Now, there was an individual, a Japanese guy whose name I cannot pronounce. Uh, he was 35 years old, and on October 7th in 2006, he went missing after going with a climb, for a climb with many of his friends. Uh, his friends were going this way. He said, I'm going to go over here and check out this view. So he went over and apparently fell off the ledge down a very long uh, kind of a smooth embankment, and they couldn't find him. 24 days later, someone found him, and he was still alive in the same spot at the end of the the big long run that he had slid down. Uh, His internal temperature was 71 degrees. Now, uh, you know, what's, what, 90? 98.6, okay. Uh, 98.6 is what's the norm, and you know, if, if if you get a fever, if you have 101, you know, if, if I have a fever 101, I think I'm going to die. Okay, that's why little kids can get the high fevers. Uh, but, you know, if you, your body temperature does not change very much. But he was 20 plus days in the snow. And apparently his function had so decreased, almost to a standstill, that he was still alive. And the medics that found him have only hypothesized at this because they've never found anybody else who was like this. Benjamin Franklin hypothesized that electricity might be possibly used to revivify the human body. Now, there's a little box outside the wall at the top of the steps called an AED, which takes Benjamin Franklin's hypothesis and puts it into practical use. Okay? Call that the the defibrillator. Well, the issue for us this morning is not someone who's been in icy water for an hour, someone who's laid in the snow for 20 days or so, but somebody who's dead. And that death was witnessed by many. That death was confirmed by many. And then three days later, there he is alive. Now let's face it, odds are that since you're here this morning, you give at least, at least, very least, tacit agreement and approval in the concept 
that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that he was dead, physically dead, and rose in the same body that went into the tomb. Now, you may not have given it much deep theological thought. You, you learned that in Sunday school. You learned it on your parents' knee. You might think to yourself, well, Randy teaches it all the time, so he's a theologian. It's good enough for me. Okay? But let's make certain that we understand that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if it is not exactly like it says, exactly as the Bible lays out for us, that he was really dead, that he was confirmed to be really and truly to have died, that he was wrapped up in the burial clothes, that he was placed in the tomb, that the stone was rolled across the opening of that grave, that it was sealed. Okay, When I talk about a seal, that's what the Romans used to do. They would, they would take wax and one of those, you know, imprint things and seal it so so if it had been tampered with it was obvious that it was tampered with that roman soldiers were placed at the entrance of the tomb to make sure that no one came and took the body and then on sunday morning the stone is found to be rolled away the tomb is empty and then later jesus is seen by over 500 witnesses if we do not believe that if it if it didn't happen that way then we're all in very very big trouble now we might not think that it affects us today but this, we're talking eternity here. If Christ didn't come out of the grave, we're not coming out of the grave. It is that simple. Because there would be no hope for us. The hope of the believer is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, when I say hope, I don't mean hope like, um, gee, we're having a picnic tomorrow and I hope it doesn't rain. Okay? Now, that hope is not based on anything other than the weather forecaster's uh, statement of the possibility of scattered showers. Mm. No. Nor is it the philosopher's hope from his own mental gymnastics and his own human reasoning. I mean, Socrates is laying there and he's dying and someone asked him, shall we live again? And his response was, I hope so. I don't think he sounded quite like Deputy Dog, but you gotta, I hope so. You know. Well, ours is not a dead hope. According to 1 Peter, we have a living hope. It is not a hope so. It is a hope sure. There's a distinction here between those two types of hope. Now, the Egyptians believed in resurrection from the dead, um, and, and that's why they led, that was what led them to call the mummy's sarcophagus the chest of the living, the chest of the living. And they would take a scarab beetle and they would place it in the heart of the deceased one. Now, the scarab beetles, um, if you watched any of the mummy movies, you know, scare beetles come and eat you. And that's, that doesn't sound very interesting, but they thought that because the larva of the scarab beetle would bury itself in the earth and then later mature as a, later emerge as a mature beetle, that the scarab beetle placed in the heart of the deceased would help them with resurrection. I don't know how placing a beetle you know, first you gotta cut the heart open and get the beetle in and and frankly I don't remember any writings, ancient writings, that talk about a pharaoh being seen coming out of the tomb. Or, you know, when, when those archaeologists go and they dig up the pyramids, what do they find? Eh, mummies. Okay, where are they? In the sarcophagus, in the chest of the living. You think, well, well, Rand, they just weren't there long enough. Give them another thousand years to mature, and then maybe they'll come up. No, the pharaohs are not coming out of the grave. Socrates, the Egyptians, held only a hope so type of hope. Sir Walter Raleigh held to a sure hope which served as an anchor for his soul and prompted him to write in his Bible the night before he was to be killed, from this earth, this grave, this dust, my God shall raise me up. 
Here's a man who's going to die in the morning. And what is he confident of? That the body that they're going to put in the grave is going to come out. According to whose power? According to the power of his God. Understand that the resurrection is the one... I don't know, if we had to have one essential doctrine, is it the resurrection? That obviously is an essential doctrine. You cannot be, you cannot fall into the category of Orthodox Christianity without believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Oh, I believe in all those things, but frankly, people don't come out of the grave. I mean, when you're dead, you're dead, okay? It's, it's really difficult to be a believer if you don't believe in the resurrection. Martha believed in the hope of the resurrection, but her hope was a doctrinal hope, Okay? He asks her, do you believe in the resurrection? Yes, I believe in the resurrection. And he takes that doctrinal belief and turns it into a personal issue. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. See, this is one of the things we have to constantly work at, is taking the doctrine that we believe in, doctrine of the resurrection, and making it real in our lives, making it personal in our lives. The resurrection is not a doctrine that has no connection to our life at this moment. We think, oh, well, Rand, you've talked a lot about, um, you know, if Christ didn't come out of the grave, we won't come out of the grave. I'm not in the grave today, and I might not be in the grave for another 40, 50, 60 years. Um, and, and, and how long will I be in the grave? Does it really matter to me today? Yes, because the resurrection is not an it. It's an I. If you stop at the it of the resurrection and hold simply to a solid doctrinal stance, I believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ. Great. How does it affect your life today? Jesus says, because I live, so you shall live. The resurrection of the believers is guaranteed by Christ's own resurrection. If you go back, probably the oldest book written in the entire Old Testament is the book of Job. In Job 19, it says... Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh shall I see God. Now, the resurrection is not spoken of much in the Old Testament, but it was a doctrine and a reality in Job's life. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. Christ shall be the object of our eternal vision, and we shall never want any joy beyond that of seeing him. Let's take a pause. What are we going to do in heaven? You know, there, there are books out there. Well, heaven's going to be a blast. What are we going to do? I, uh, I don't know. We're all going to be there. What are we going to do? We're going to praise God. Well, doesn't that, how long can we praise God, okay? <laughs> Forever. The choir's got all the answers. I'm, uh, outstanding, okay? Spurgeon puts it this way. We will never want any joy except what? Beyond that of seeing him. The reason we think, well, how can we praise God Forever. You know, I can barely hang out in church for an hour and a half. Gosh, how, how do we do this? It's because of our sin. When that sin has been removed, when that sin is finally taken from us completely, our only joy, we won't need any more joy than to be with Christ, to see our Heavenly Father face to face, to be in the presence of all the church, of all the believers, of all time, will be there what joy shall fill our hearts. So Spurgeon goes on and says, Think not that this will be a narrow sphere for the mind to dwell in. It is but one source of delight, but that source is infinite. All his attributes shall be subjects for contemplation. And as he is infinite under each aspect, there is no fear of exhaustion. His works, his gifts, 
his love to us and his glory in all his purposes and in all his actions, these shall make an eternal theme which will be ever new. If there's a, if there, let's say there's a, a, I don't think there's any days in heaven, but let's say there's a day in heaven. What are we going to do tomorrow? We're going to worship. Okay, great. What are we going to do on Thursday? We're going to worship. You know, what are we going to do on Friday? We're going to contemplate his beauty. What are we going to do on, fr- on Friday? We're going to contemplate his beauty some more because it is infinite and we can't exhaust his beauty. We can't exhaust his glory. We can think on it forever and, and still not even scratch the surface of it. Now, how do we who are here this morning make the resurrection an eye reality in our lives? Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Really, Jim read from Romans, Dan was read, reading Romans, it's, it's like this was a conspiracy today um, to go to this chapter in Romans. Romans chapter 5, the very last verse, then we're going to jump into verse 6, or chapter 6. Romans chapter 5, verse 21. As sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Eternal life comes through Jesus Christ. Grace reigns over us. It reigns in in the righteousness of Christ. It reigns by his mediating work. It reigns to eternal life. This is the new life that has been granted to us through Jesus Christ. Now let's look at chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? Now, this is Paul's rhetorical question because they have been talking about, well, since I've got grace, I can just go and live however I want. And, you know, in fact, if I go and sin, then that means God's grace will have to be made more manifest in my life and all the more glory for our Heavenly Father. That's kind of the Rasputin theology, okay? If I sin more, God has to forgive me more. His glory is even better. Paul says, forget that, okay? I don't think he quite said forget that. But he said, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Ah, here's the rub. Here's where it comes down to. You want to understand resurrection today? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. What what does resurrection have to do with my life today? So that you might walk in the newness of this life. Paul emphasizes in this passage that resurrection is the source of two things in our life. Justification and sanctification. Justification and sanctification. Justification is that moment where you were an enemy of God and he makes you his. He comes into your life. He draws you under yourself. Bam, your life has changed forever. You have been justified in an instant. It happens. An instant is too long of a term for it. It happens so, so quickly. Sanctification is that lifelong process of growing to the things of Christ, to becoming more and more Christ-like in all areas of our lives. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the source of our being accepted by God the Father. It is the source of our being found not guilty 
by God the Father. It is the source of our being forgiven by God the Father, but it is also the source of our transformation. Not only are we accepted as righteous, but we are also transformed increasingly into the righteousness of Christ. That's sanctification. Okay? Some days we're transformed pretty fast, and other days, not at all, it seems. And we go, gee, Lord, uh, I didn't do too well today. Um, but yet he's still working on us. It's the power of the resurrection that does this. Paul takes the next few verses here in this little passage to explain this. So let me give you two things here. First, because of the resurrection of Christ, the transformation that comes with it means you cannot go on living in sin. That's what it is. It, verse, uh, verse 4, the end of verse 4. So we too might walk in the newness of life. That's what it's for. Okay, that's how we understand it today. Yes, we will be raised from the grave, but today, how does it affect my life? He has been raised so that I might walk in the newness of this life. Paul asks the question, how is it that we, who have died to sin, can therefore go on and keep living in sin? See, that was one of the questions that, that, that was going on in the Roman church. What, do I really have to change my life now that I've been saved? Do I have to do anything? Can I just can't? Can I just keep on living as I've been living? He says, no, you are dead to sin. Dead to sin. Dead. What's that word mean? I'm still moving. I'm thinking. Dead. When you're dead, you cannot help. When you are dead, you cannot do anything. When you are dead, you are just there. Everything has to be done for you. You are now dead to sin. How can you go on and live within it? Go on and continue to practice it. That's the question that Paul is raising here. It's a contradiction. If you are alive in Christ, you need to be dead to sin. How can you go on and live in sin then? It's a contradiction of purposes. You belong to our Heavenly Father now. You do not, are no longer held in bondage to the things of sin. You have been freed there. You are held in bondage, bondage to the things of Christ. Christians are those who have died to sin. If we've died to sin, how can we possibly think that it's okay to go on and continue to habitually, purposefully, and unrepentantly pursue sin? Yeah. See, when you're united with Christ, Paul says this whole passage is talking about union with Christ. You belong to him. He has given his life for you. He has risen from the dead that might guarantee your resurrection from the dead. Now, put your sin to death. And live in the resurrection of Christ. Then he talks about baptism. You are baptized into Christ. Therefore sin is no longer the master over you. Christ is the master over you. No longer is sin your Lord. Christ is your Lord. You're not under the dominion of sin. You're not under the condemnation of the law. You're now living in a sense in the grace of of the dominion of the reign of Christ. You are not in the dominion of the reign of sin any longer. You belong to Christ. You are in his sphere of influence. You are under his authority. You are under his dominion. Now, Paul uses three words. You've been crucified, died, and buried. Okay? That kind of sums it up, okay? You couldn't find three better words to stress the discontinuity between the old life and the new life. The life before a believer in the life after coming to Christ. If you've been crucified, you're good and dead. If you've died, you are good and dead. If you've been buried, you are good and dead. You're dead to the dominion of sin. 
Well, why? Verse 4. So that we can walk in the newness of life. We're just, we're, the Lord hasn't done all this stuff just, just for no reason. Just because he likes us. He does this so that we might demonstrate in the newness of our life the power of Christ and not the dominion of sin. This break with sin is not something that is a temporary break. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, after I became a believer, man, I was really good for that first week, month maybe, maybe years, but you kind of faded off and it's not so much. Kind of just blended in with the rest of society. Oh, yeah, but I'm a little bit better than society. Are, are, are we in, in conjunction with what the Lord teaches? Is that how good we are? Are our lives being conformed to the things of Christ? No, this is a permanent change in our life. But remember, justification and sanctification. That sanctification is a process where the Lord empowers us, the Lord enables us, but what do we have to do? I'm the one that has to avoid that temptation. I'm the one that comes face to face with a decision and I can say I can go along with society and blend in and nobody will be upset with me or I can do the thing that Christ calls me to do. I might stand apart from society. I might look strange to society, but yet Christ calls me to live in this fashion. Let's look at it this way. You get hauled into court. But this is God's court. Okay? So there he is. And you've had the trial. And the hammer comes down. And the judge, who's God, says, Okay, I read the case. You're guilty. And there are no mitigating circumstances. Uh, you deserve all the punishment that I can give out to you. You deserve the full penalty, the full weight of the law for your transgression. But because of my son, but because of his perfect work, because I brought him out of the grave, I'm going to find you not guilty because he took it. He bore the penalty for your sin. Your slate is clean. Now, and then he goes on to say, but I'm not going to send you out of this courtroom to live on your own because you can't possibly live on your own. You can't possibly live up to the expectations of this, walking in the newness of life. You can't do that on your own. You have to have my help. Not only does the Lord find us guilty, and then make a way for our sin to be atoned for, and then send us out to live that life in the newness of life. Then he says, I'm also going to give you the power to do it. I'm going to give you the power to do it. And that power comes through the resurrection of Christ. Verse 5. For we have become united with him in the likeness of his death. Certainly we shall also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is free from sin. Free from sin. Now, I know that's tough for, for some of us to understand because sin has such a strong hold in some area of our life. Now, I don't know what area it is of yours, but some of us... Sin has gripped us so long that, that perhaps we've rationalized it and we've said, no, it's okay. Or maybe it is so infused into our lives that we just think this is the way life is and there's nothing can be done. No, you are freed from sin. The question is, will you exercise that freedom in Christ? Believers are raised to a newness of life. We're granted a foretaste of this resurrection. 
We're no longer under the dominion of sin. In our present existence, we can live in the power of the resurrected Christ. When you believe on Jesus Christ, God grants you a new life that flows from Christ. It is yours because you're united to him. He's done the work. He's done it. He's come out of the grave. But ran. I still have problems with sin. I mean, you're, you're talking like I'm never going to sin again. No, that's not what Paul says here. All you have to do is jump to chapter 7 and read chapter 7. Paul's tempted. He gives in to sin sometimes. He wrestles with it on a regular basis. That's part of the growth process that we have. God does not save you and forgive you and give you new life so that you can go and live however you please. God saves you and forgives you and grants you new life that you may walk in the newness of that life. The resurrection of Christ, the gift of eternal life, the freedom that comes with his grace is meant to empower us and propel us to the work that he has prepared before the foundations of the earth for us to do. The old life died. That old life is gone. It's been buried. The new life is here. The new resurrection life is ever before us. The question for us today is, will we live it? Colossians chapter 3 says, If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Let us set our minds on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For we have died, and our life is hidden with Christ in God. Will we live this new life in Christ? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is uh, so much here. But it is clear before us, we are called to new lives. We are empowered to live those new lives because of the work of Christ. The tomb is empty. The Holy Spirit has come. The Lord has called our name. You have saved us. And now you say, go walk in the newness of life through the resurrected power of Jesus Christ. We ask, Lord that our minds and hearts would be set on this, that we would look for those opportunities to stand on what is right in the word, to demonstrate the grace and mercy you have given in our lives to those around us, or that the things of Christ might be heard from our lips and seen from the works of our hands. And we ask this in his precious name. Amen.